Welcome to Building the Oracle, a podcast about two dudes building a publishing house and film studio from the ground up with nothing more than a toothpick, rubber band, and one off-brand stick of bubblegum. I'm your host, Jay Swanson. And I'm Richard Bilkey. And today's guest is possibly my oldest friend in the traditional publishing establishment, Mike Underwood. He took me under his wing when I was just a wee sci-fi lad and taught me everything I know though I'm sure he'd absolve himself of any real responsibility. The real question we had for him today, though, revolved around the secrets of how publishers really sell books, and a lot of them. This was right up Richard's alley. Yes, uh, Mike is one of the rare peeps found success both as an author and as a bookseller. And so it gives him a very broad end-to-end perspective of the book industry, which is extremely valuable. Um, Any listeners out there who hope to have a career as an author or in publishing, I think you really get a lot out of this conversation. But before we dive into today's conversation, I want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, Friendship. From David to Jonathan, Samwise to Frodo, Friendship has been saving the world since a time untold. Friendship. Get some. Uh, With that, let's jump into today's conversation with our friend Mike Underwood. This was the first time that we had a call-in co-host. I was on location in Novi, Michigan with Mike hanging out in the hotel, talking directly into the soundboard. And so we had the delightful experience of Richard calling in. So there's a little bit of a sound quality difference and a little bit of a struggle on the time delay. Just wanted to let you know before we dove in. Sorry about that, guys. (laughs) Nothing to worry about. Let's dive in. Welcome to Building the Oracle. I'm your host, Jay Swanson. And today I'm lucky to be joined by one of my first and best friends in publishing, Mike Underwood. Hi, Mike. Oh, hi, Jay. <laughs> Mike is the author of the forthcoming space opera Annihilation Aria, published by Purvis Press and available for purchase here in 2020 in May. And I have, I am fortunate enough to say, one of the few and not readily available ARC copies of the book. It's so pretty. It's beautiful. I, I'm not being humble. It's like, it's very pretty. The artist did a fantastic job, and Colin is a good art director. It's so good. If you're listening in the future, there's no pre-order necessary. Just go buy a copy right now. Annihilation Aria is Mike's eighth book, if you include the Genre Nuts series, I think, if I tallied that correctly. I mean, it depends on how you count them, because Genre Nuts is novellas, so like right. sometimes I say I've published over a dozen books because novellas publishes books. Oh, yeah. But this is my, I don't know, sixth or seventh novel. He's not just a prolific author or a master of meta, which he is definitely both of both of those. Mike is infamous for his book-selling tenacity as both the former North American sales and marketing manager for Ingo Robot Books and the current best salesman of his own work. Mike travels the globe teaching authors how to pitch their work to prospective readers through one of his personal specialties, hand-selling. Mike's also a dear friend who welcomed me into the publishing community and is a generous connector of people of all stripes and varieties. Mike, it's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, there's a soundboard, and I'm really trying to figure out how I can loop conversations around to things so that Jay can add them in. I told him I wasn't going to use that sound effect, <laughs> and that absolutely does not tie in, but it's there. Well, I did walk straight up to it and kind of gesture. I'm happy to I'm happy to throw. We've got a few more sound effects in the bag. I'm happy to throw them in there as we go. Most of the authors that we've had on the show so far have gotten the question, why did you move to Paris or how did you get here? But I want to know how you ended up in Baltimore, was it because you were running away from tornadoes? Uh, so, you know, like we have tornadoes in Indiana and, um, but the town I'm from in Indiana is actually fairly insulated. So that is not what drove me from the, the hallowed uh, halls of the Hoosier homeland. Uh, instead it was love. 
Love is a good reason. True love. Um, so my now wife and I moved to New York for my angry robot job, and then she got a job uh, working for the government. So we moved down to the D.C. area and decided that we wanted to be in Baltimore rather than D.C. Baltimore is a bit more laid back. There's a great culture and art scene there, and it's more affordable. Meg, your wife, has connections to California originally, correct? Yes. She is from the Valley. The Valley. Yes. I met a Valley girl the other day. It was fun. Uh, so are you guys, I, she actually went on full. She like, she, as soon as she told me, she said it in the way. Then I was like, this is so good. I love it. Uh, you're also, I just kind of want to dig into who you are as a person here a little bit. You, cause you've written a lot of books. You've sold even more books. You're, you are, I feel like you're a mainstay within the science fiction fantasy community, but I'm really curious just to know between those moves, I know that you've gained a real heart and a passion for your now hometown in Baltimore. Um, but you're a very passionate person across the board. What is it that has connected you to any given place along the way? And when you're in Baltimore now, do you imagine yourself staying there for the long haul? Yeah, I think the thing that helps me connect to a place, um, it's a lot of different steps over a longer time. When I was a traveling sales rep, I would, you know, I'd spend a night or maybe a day or two in small towns to suburbs to big city, you know, the biggest cities across the Midwest from Columbus to Cleveland and sometimes trips to Chicago to see my colleagues, you know, all the way out to um, South Dakota um, or Iowa, Nebraska. And the way that I, one of the things that I got to do during that trip, uh, during that kind of like all of those trips is come to understand a little bit of what life is like in those individual places because the USA is so gigantic and is, in some ways more equivalent to um, something like the EU, but governed as one nation. And of course there's you know lots of internal politics in terms of how the US works and federalism and whatever. But the thing that I wanted from that, uh, that experience was to know a little bit more about what it was to be in a, in a place. So that was trying to eat local foods, drink local beers. Um, and then I learned a lot about a place through its bookstores because I was selling at bookstores and seeing, you know, how do they serve their local communities? What types of regional books or like regional material are they covering? How are they fostering reading and writing and literary community in their area? Um, and that was one of the biggest ways that I would learn about a place is through the booksellers who were my colleagues that I was uh, working with when I was a rep. And I've kind of taken that with me and I think the other thing about placeness is that I moved around a lot as a kid. One of the things that helps me feel like I'm not just a mole person in a cave is being in the place. You know, I work from home and I've worked from home for most of my professional career. And there were times when I just wouldn't go out very much. So instead, uh, now that I have a cute little dog, uh, Oreo, um, he needs to go out all the time and that helps me be in the world. And I try to attend to what a specific place offers and how people live and what they care about in that place. So I lived in Baltimore during the Baltimore uprising after the death of Freddie Gray and trying to learn about how people in Baltimore are dealing with, you know, intersections of economics and race and power and history uh, because Baltimore is very much a city about the legacy of African diaspora uh, black people in America, you know, brought against their will and all of the history that black folks in America have built up for themselves in and around and against systems of power and being feeling like a kind of a guest in a city that is more about a black experience in America and trying to figure out how I can 
learn about that and kind of be supportive in, in a useful way. But then I also live in a neighborhood where there's just a ton of Latinas immigrants from all over um, South and Central America. And the place I lived in before where I live now, it was a coin flip of whether I'd hear Spanish or English first walking out the door. And so just trying to be a good neighbor there and um, trying to be a part of a community in the little places that I can, even though I'm still spending a lot of time on my writing um, and it's hard to you know be as connected as I might want to be. But Baltimore is just, you know, a city of lots of festivals and it just, it's a place that feels like it is being itself. Um, and I've lived in suburbs that felt more generic. And when I was traveling, I went traveled through a lot of places that felt like they didn't have as strong or I wasn't able to see as much of their specific local character. Um, so I try to look for it where I can. Yeah, I've never been to Baltimore, but you make it sound fascinating, to be honest. Yeah, and it's it's a lot of different places at once um, yeah. because it's um, like the, the kitschy John Waters neighborhood Hamden. Uh, but it's also West Baltimore that is the part of Baltimore that most looks like the wire. Mm. Um, but then it's also Fells Point, which is a very historic district with strong sailing ties, things like that. Now there's a lot going on. Yeah. Was there, this is just kind of taking a step back to what you were saying earlier as well with all the moving you were doing. I've done a lot of bouncing around as well. And I feel like you, what you described is a really good way of taking advantage of what's in front of you in every local community. When you were getting into the the bookstores, which Richard is a huge fan of bookstores for obvious yeah, reasons. I, I was going to jump in because I think, um, Mike, you and I have had a very similar experience, both in moving around and uh, obviously moving to where you currently are for love. That's exactly how I ended up in Paris as well um, with my now wife. Um, but also starting out in a sales position that, that I, I did a lot of travel around Australia uh, in exactly the same role, in a sales role. Yeah. going to bookshops and and that's still how i navigate the world is you know i, I landed a new city and and start from the bookshops i think that uh, you know uh, from a travel perspective you know bookshops are wonderful but also from uh from the book industry perspective starting in a in a sales role where you're on the road and you and you're actually in in the bookshops in those communities is perhaps the best way to enter into the um into the publishing industry yeah, I sometimes talk about traveling sales as like the bard uh, class of publishing <laughs> jobs Yes, <laughs> because you have to be a little bit of everything. You know, you're involved in publicity, yep. you're dealing with sales, you're really connected to the fulfillment and logistics side. Um, yeah, I totally agree in terms of uh, like an entry style job. That's when when you yeah. were traveling around too. Did, were there any particular parts of America that surprised you with the strength of the literary community that you found? Yeah, I think it was it was often. Uh, just how vibrant the reading community was in a smaller suburb, exurb, or even like not really like um, towns that weren't as connected to a bigger city, but where the bookstore had successfully um, made itself the beating heart of the literary community, sometimes for as much as 50 or 100 miles in any direction. Um, because after the kind of the hollowing out in the 2000s, there are a lot of areas that are underserved um, for bookstores. You know, maybe they have a Barnes & Noble in the area, but um, there's big, ch big chunks of time when Barnes & Noble has not had the capacity or the leadership has not been interested in doing as much in terms of local events. Um, so the independents are really, they're the resources for the local um, school systems, or they are where marginalized youth are able to connect with material that reflects their identity. You know, if you're a if you're a queer kid in rural Kansas, but you have a good bookstore, that's maybe where you're able to connect with something where you see yourself in a way that you haven't before. 
It's really valuable. It's important. Just another thought that that springs up. That I've seen a lot of reporting recently that independent bookstores are kind of having a comeback right now. For sure. Do you feel like that's reflected in the travels and selling you're doing now? And is it something that's going to stay? Yeah, I, I think I was traveling as a rep from 2009 to 2012, which I think was a start of one of a few waves of independent stores um, some were generational handovers where, you know, the owners who had been running the store for maybe 20 or 30 years were deciding to retire and either selling the store entirely or handing over the reins to some of their colleagues who were younger. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's a, a generational changeover and sometimes it was just a, a question of a, a different idea of what professionalism meant as a bookseller in terms of attending to, um, you know, internet commerce and different ways that a bookstore could make itself useful in a community uh, compared to what Amazon does, because Amazon is so powerful in its strengths that it's very hard to challenge them there. So if you want to survive and thrive as a bookstore, you find the ways that you are able to really provide a service and excel in a way that Amazon cannot for you know people in your community. And that's usually community events. It's being hyper-local. It's supporting schools and things like that. And when I was traveling around, I saw different stores doing a different mix of those things. You know, stores here would do a lot of events and they'd bring, bring people in, you know, they kind of punched above their weight class. They're a fairly small store, but they would get New York Times bestsellers in because they had built a community that would support an author. So, you know, an author would say, no, 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 get me up to McLean and Aiken. I know it's in North Michigan, but they're fantastic and I want to go and see them. And that's been really cool. And, you know, there's different stores and everybody finds their own balance. And I do think that it's sustainable because it is about really understanding what your community needs and how you can serve them. And because if you're, if you're a store that is thoroughly enmeshed within a community, your value is perceived along a different axis than just the, is it cheap and fast from Amazon? Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, having been a sales rep like you, you, you get a bird's eye view. You can see so many different, uh, you know, managers, bookshop managers and, and, and stores trying different things. And you get a real window into, into the different marketing and, um, the professionalism you mentioned professionalism um i was i was repping between 2006 and 2009 so pretty much overlapping with you and in australia that was very much a time when the the impact of amazon was having right. um a real big you know that's when the retailers are really started to feel that ebooks weren't making so much of a mark but then of course the, the global financial crisis really hit and yeah. um when that happened that the, you know those those three stresses on bookshops in australia it was pretty devastating to to the industry there um as it was in the u.s and you really got a sense i think you could see which shops were going to survive and which shops weren't um simply through the professionalism of the the management there um and and you knew instinctively having you know worked with them fairly closely for three years you could you could really see which ones had had thought about this in advance and 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 were more than just a a, a box with shelves on it with books they have you know the, the the days where you could just set up a a bookshop which was just a room with shelves and, and books on it for people to come in and buy you know though they were marginal businesses and they just couldn't survive and now a bookshop has to be uh, so much more than that and uh, i think the the resurgence is is partly the fact that you know, Barnes and Noble and, and, and Borders have, have gone down this, this space out there now and the independents are feel, filling that vacuum. But I think you're right that there's definitely a, a new understanding that they, that they need to be more than, than they were before um, with, with such a big competitor like Amazon out there. Um, they have to find new ways. 
Yeah, and so. I also know that um, yeah. the people have been speaking really well of the like American Bookseller Association, and you know they're yeah. they're up to two or three conferences a year now, and the regional book uh, associations. There's been so much um, collaboration between booksellers and you know kind of future bookstore owners. Um, you know, the, there's been times you can go to. ABA and you know you'll get a whole day worth of panels that are so you're thinking you're going to open up a bookstore and people are so forthcoming and generous with their knowledge because they're all bought in on the idea that if independent bookselling is stronger across the country and across the yeah. you know the world that that's to any, everyone's benefit and I totally agree I can't I agree think, with you more yeah there's been some great responses to that where I see people who are coming either out of book selling or they're coming out of um, publishing and they are welcomed and supported. And I think that increases the likelihood that some of these new bookstores are able to succeed because they're learning the lessons that their, their now colleagues have been learning over decades and they're able to apply them. It's exactly the reason I'm in the book industry now. It's because when I first entered it as a 23 year old with my dad um, opening a bookshop, we were really welcomed into the, the independent bookshop community. Um, and the support I got there was just, Incredible. And that's, that's, that's really what, what cemented my career. I, I might have gone another direction, but the, uh, the support and the community of booksellers in Sydney um, that supported us and, and got us on our way. Both of you have familial ties to the book industry. Yeah. And we're, I think uh, Richard wasn't quite raised in it the same way you were. Uh, your story is actually a little bit interesting because of that, because the average author has a different job of some sort along the way, right? And we're really interested on this podcast and what makes people choose a creative career and take those risks. And because you have been on the professional side of the coin, I'm really curious how that has informed your career as a sci-fi author. And if you feel like it's introduced some perks, I don't know what the right word I'm looking for is some advantages, but it's also maybe introduced some challenges to you that would be a little bit different than the average author. Yeah, so my my dad is a, um, a kind of high level sales manager for Penguin Random House. So he was a field rep, and now he manages it, um, some of the teams of field reps. Uh, and he, you know, he didn't really he didn't push me into book selling at all. Um, but I grew up around publishing and was already a heavy reader, and from a very young age wanted to grow up and be a writer. But it took a while for me to understand what that really meant. And that I could just start whenever I wanted to. You know, I do have memories of sitting underneath my dad's desk, licking stamps to put on envelopes for when he was working in publicity and sending out mailers and things. Um, so, like, to a certain extent, I started in publishing early. And I don't feel like that kind of foreclosed options on me, but it did it did help me feel like I would have support if I wanted to continue in that space. But throughout college, I was planning on going into academia. Um, okay. at the start of undergrad, I, I thought that I was going to get a language degree and go to move, move to Japan and like work for a video game company or something in like export or sales or, or whatever. And then I, um, like nine 11 happened and I was kind of searching around for maybe a different kind of purpose. And I found Joseph Campbell, um, and the Joseph Campbell, Bill Moyers, power of myth, um, book, and then the, the videos and really got into like rekindled and strengthened my, my love of mythology and storytelling. And I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe I can take this academic interest and combine it with my desire to be a storyteller and a writer, and then I can kind of make some meaning and contribute to the way that we use stories to make meaning and kind of build a better future for ourselves. But I still thought that I would need a, a different kind of day job. And I was expecting to go into like media studies or like literary theory and, and be a teacher. 
because both of my parents had been teachers at different times. So that was also kind of in my family. And I like sharing the things that I love and teaching felt very accessible. But I finished grad school in 2007 and then spent a couple of years applying to grad programs and just didn't get anywhere because I was what I wanted to do for my dissertation was write, on, write about the, the mass commoditization of geek culture right. that I saw coming and was already happening. Um, As it became chic to be geek. Right. And it just didn't end up being the direction that I took. And so I tacked in, you know, I did a little bit of teaching and then got started in publishing. I've absolutely learned a lot and gained a lot from being on the staff side in terms of what I know and how I approach my writing in terms of my author career. Mm. You know, I, I tend to think more about packaging and the commercial options for a project much earlier in the process than I think a lot of my colleagues do. And I don't, I'm not saying this to say that I'm doing it better than they are or that, you know, one way is the best, but because I have the background, I cannot help but think about packaging and positioning. Um, so the idea that I had for what the cover for Annihilation Aria should probably look like formed fairly early. And um, Colin at Parvis was very open to that. And we worked very much hand in hand on developing the, the art brief. Yeah, it looks amazing. But, but going into a project, I'm going to think about who is this for? Where is the market for it? Are the, you know, are the trends in subgenre moving toward this, moving away from it? Am I trying to do something that's a little bit more evergreen and a lot of things like that. And the downside to it is probably uh, best expressed by like a tabletop role-playing game reference. So in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, you have the sanity meter. The, so this is, I'm so not surprised. One of the skills that you can have is mythos knowledge. It's mm. like your, your knowledge of arcane and, you know, these, these otherworldly things. But the higher your mythos knowledge, the, ma the lower your maximum sanity can be. And, you know, and there's some disability rep questions about that type of system. Yeah. But as a joke, the idea that because I know more about publishing, sometimes I can't sleep as well at night because I know all the different ways <laughs> that things can go wrong. I know what is really important. And if I feel like um, something isn't happening that is on that, you know, the really essential level, then I'm going to lose sleep about it in a way that maybe another author who doesn't have that background might not necessarily know to worry. But that's, I feel like that's true. The more you, it's, it's kind of goes in hand, hand in hand with the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know. And in the same way, the more, you know, in the industry that like publishing, I think a lot of people have this misconception that once you're a published author, riches and fame await. Right. And you're now you're, you're, you're wealthy beyond your most, you know, your wildest dreams. And they're going to make movies, not only about your books, but about you when you die. And, um, the harsh reality is that there are a lot of books published that, that, that don't go anywhere. And so I, I can imagine that having sold books and seen how many books go out and then d go nowhere from there, that it would actually cause mild existential crises that don't re revolve around any Cthulhu's. No, I have, um, I have sent the emails and made the spreadsheets that, that give the approval to shred thousands and thousands of books. Right. And that's kind of heartbreaking. I don't think people <laughs> even know the books get shredded. Like, I, don't, I think a lot of people, that they have Pult. no idea that books get yeah. shipped upstate by the crate, like, yeah. into a farm where they turn into mulch. So, one of the questions I was going to ask between this, too, because we talked about your... So, it's interesting, because that's where geekomancy comes from, to a degree, right? Is your, your chic yeah. uh, forewarnings. And then you've got experience as an author in both the traditional and self-published worlds, because you started the Genre Nuts novella series we referenced earlier with Tor... And then you ended up taking that on yourself to make an omnibus 
version, uh, which was really exciting. And I was uh, excited to be a part of that uh, as it was going a small, but I like to think passionate and potentially impactful part of it. And so I'm really curious for you, uh, you've, you've done both and we've talked about this a little bit off mic, but in the experience between self-publishing and traditional publishing, which would you gravitate towards more now and why? So for me, I think that they're both great options, but they're so different. And it feels like they're becoming more different because I'm seeing on the traditional side imprints, and this is, I'm mostly going to be talking about science fiction fantasy because it's the category I work in. And, and so if, you know, if you're working in another category, this may not apply as much. So that's my caveat for folks listening. In science fiction, it feels like we're moving more toward standalones and some duologies in terms of the traditional market where there's been some die-off in shelf space in the last year or two. Barn- a lot of Barnes & Noble locations have removed their new in science fiction bays. Oh, no. And so it feels like in some parts of the retail field, it's been it's been harder to support a series uh, you know, for a longer time, especially a series longer than three books. And so the response seems to be a little bit more of a focus on a standalone where you get in, you knock people's socks off and you get out. And then your next book is another standalone. And it's easier to promote that one because you're not relying on someone having read something else. But on the independent side, I'm seeing more authors leaning into longer and longer series where they are building a long sales funnel to take a, take a reader to the point where they're so, so super invested that they become a super fan of that series. And maybe they're more a fan of the series than you as an author. And then you are um, splitting up and doing a lot of different pen names and you're building a funnel for each series. And so that feels like the market is bifurcating uh, where the independent space is mostly focusing on digital ebook and some audio and physical is not as important. In the traditional space, physical is still the most important. It's because that's where they have the relationships with physical bookstores. It's where they have, you know, they put millions and millions of dollars into warehousing and distribution, all of those relationships. So they want to maximize their strength and folks in the indie space want to maximize their strength and partner with places like Amazon that have the, that have the reach and the base there. And so for a new author, the most important question for me is, what do you want your career to look like? Are you most interested in making a working class living? You're like, I'm a writer. That's what I do. I'm like a plumber. I show up, I write my books, I do the work. I just want to make a living. Then I go home and play Mario Kart. Right. Um, Versus an author who, you know, they dream of being a literary darling. They want to win Hugos and Nebulas. They want to be a part of a discourse community in the world of literary science fiction and fantasy. Or you're someone who's like, I just want to be read. I just want people to react to my work and I want to know that I'm connecting with people. Well, those are really different goals. And the person who mostly wants to make a living and is happy to, you know, pick up new skills, put in a lot of, you know, put in a lot of time, then they might find a lot of success and more steady results in the independent space because they're more in control of their career in terms of being the publisher and if they can write quickly and they can learn how to ride the algorithms and to do all of the kind of entrepreneurial stuff, if you've got the entre- uh, that entrepreneurial spirit, the independent space may be best for you. If you know that you need a day job or you're not really interested in your writing being um, your day job, then traditional may be better for you because you're going to have people who are going to serve as a force multiplier for your work. They're going to be able to reach bookstores and libraries in a way that is really hard to do in independent. And if you just want to be read, 
Wattpad and, and AO3 are free. And there are writers who that's what they're focusing on. And, you know, they're putting, ori- they're putting original fiction on Wattpad or on AO3 or, you know, they're, there's a million and one ways to get your material out. You know, you publish fiction on Medium or something. Uh, so, you know, my Aria is traditional with a smaller press because they were the people who had the plan and wanted to go into business for this project. The next book I'm writing, I'm hoping to get a bigger traditional deal with more industrial support to be able to increase my reach because I've mostly had digital sales. So I've not been able to to reach as much of the market on the physical side. So that's how I'm planning my goals now, but I may get to reissue some of my older fiction and then that's almost certainly going to be uh, on the independent side. So I try to bring like the hybrid mentality where for each project I'm figuring out what the best fit is for it. And I think that that is a great approach for a lot of people, depending again on what your goals are. So uh, something you said very early there, I think that whole thing was, was interesting to hear the perspective you know, your perspective on seeing Barnes & Noble spaces, you know, the, the shelf space in Barnes & Noble has decreased and and the, the flowback effect that has to publishers and, and the amount of uh, science fiction fantasy books that are being published. I wanted to question you about linking that to the way, you know, independents are bouncing back. So we know that we talked before about uh, independent bookshops are on the increase again, partly because Barnes & Noble, you know, is in decline and there, there are more gaps there. But is it a case that, that these independents that are coming in, they're not filling those gaps in the sci-fi space or there aren't as many specialist sci-fi bookshops, for example, coming through to, to fill that space? Is it, um, Yeah, I, you know... I think that it's not... Yeah, it's not sorry, been on, a one-to-one. Yeah. Uh, I don't feel like that there's been a collective response inside the independent bookselling space of going, oh, this one thing happened at Barnes & Noble. We're going to do one thing specifically in response. And a lot of that is because... Indies, while they they talk a lot, they don't tend to move together. Like they're not a confederation of of stores. Um, so the responses are going to be very individualized. And a lot of those stores, one of the ways they're succeeding is that they are stocking very specifically for their their audience. And there are some subgenres where it seems like independents have either had a harder time or a lot of the owners have been more resistant to trying to engage with specific subgenre communities. So um, the romance readers of the world are tend to be really underserved in the physical world um, because romance gets discriminated against because of people being misogynists, basically, even though romance is the top grossing genre in genre fiction. Maybe I just really can't believe it's not butter. Well, it, like Fabio hasn't been relevant <laughs> um, in romance for like 20 years now. I, I know that's, that was just the, all I could think of was long flowing hair and it was no, a but this, this, there's always been a snobbery by particular. I mean, I, I certainly witnessed this myself as a bookseller and as a um, as a rep. You know, they just didn't want romance on the shelves. Independent bookshops didn't because they were trying to create. Uh, you know, their whole one of the, the things that sets them apart is the curation, and and they're trying to set the tone for their shop, which is a literary right. bookshop or these sort of things. And having a having a romance section or having a science fiction fantasy section um, because or well, there's still a um, a sense that, that science fiction fantasy isn't as literary as other genres. So I can understand why independence wouldn't be. I, I certainly, when I opened my bookshop with my father, I had a whole section for science fiction and fantasy because that's yeah. what I loved. And, you know, after months, you know, after after a year, I just I had to cull it. I had to pull it down. And it just month after month, that section got smaller and smaller simply because the community that came into our bookshop, I just didn't have a strong science fiction fantasy 
um, readership in, in that bookshop. So that was just a reality. Even though I wanted to push it, it, it the, the readership just wasn't there for me. And I think that's the, that's the case for but a lot of people. But I feel like that's the ultimate um, irony of but, not having a romance section because it is uh, such a huge industry on its own. You, I feel like you'd be selling books hand over fist. Oh, I would have. I would have. Yeah. And, and, and I did to customers who came and asked. So uh, I would have uh, a group. There was about four or five women who would come in uh, every month and they'd order 10 to 15 books every month. Um, they pre-order. They knew the ones they wanted. This is before Amazon um, was making a real impact in Australia. This is back in 2003, 2004. Um, and they, so they couldn't get these books because none of the bookshops were stocking them. And so I would simply order them in from Baker and Taylor over in the US in advance. And, and I'd have, that was a hundred sales uh, or more every month simply because, yeah, people just didn't stock these books. Um, and yeah, that's that's why the romance the romance um, publishers were were some of the first to really um, get into ebooks and and um, have been incredible at building their online communities and selling direct um, digitally. And they've done an incredible I, job. I do want to give a shout out to the Ripped Bodice, which is a romance focused independent bookstore um, in California, and they they're just maybe five or so years old. And they, it's very much for romance readers, by romance readers. And they have turned themselves into a, absolutely a destination for romance readers and writers. And they've, they've shown that That's you wonderful. can succeed yeah. with a romance specialty shop if you are within the community and you are connecting with the community. And there are still strong science fiction fantasy bookstores. There's just not as many of them from Mysterious Galaxy to Uncle Hugo's. Um, and places like that. And so they're still around. And even my lo most local indie, Greedy Reads in Baltimore, has a very strong science fiction section for the size. And it's ni very nicely curated to the community. So there's a, you know, there's a lot of uh, black science fiction writers because the store is trying to represent and um, connect with the black science fiction readership within Baltimore and just the fact that Baltimore has a strong science fiction community. So like, you know, there are the, those middle spaces that you can find, but um, as Richard said, it can be very hard because to a certain extent you have to respond to what the readership is, is dictating in terms of their buying patterns. Yeah. Every space on that shelf is, uh, has its own turnover. You've got to, you know, and this is the, the idea of, you know, the, the professionalization of, of booksellers, they've had to realize that, that that real estate has to, each space on that shelf has to contribute to the profit line of that of that bookshop. And if you've got, you know, um, shelves that are sitting there and just not turning over fast enough, then you, you can't afford to keep doing that these days. And we're going to dive even deeper into the mysterious life of books being turned over on bookshelves here shortly with Mike Underwood after the break. We just wanted to take a quick ad break here, quote unquote ad break, to pump the newsletter that we put out every week. It's put together with love by my assistant, Kate Weber, who does a fantastic job. It is very Paris focused right now. It, it does a, a review of my photos of the week, along with some bonus photos that you can get nowhere else, and Kate's inside scoop on life in Paris. If you're interested in Paris at all, you should definitely check it out. But we're going to be including and adding more to it, including things that involve building the Oracle directly. And so make sure you sign up for that now and uh, we'll see if we can get you put into the right segmentation so you get exactly what it is you're interested in. Yeah. Make sure you read Kate's Corner. Make sure you read Kate's Corner. It is great. If you want to sign up for the newsletter, go to jswanson.me slash newsletter. That's jswanson, J-A-Y, swanson.me slash newsletter. And now back to the wonderful 
Mike Underwood. And we're back. Uh, so regular listeners to this podcast will know that our goal is to build a publishing house around Jay's science fiction fantasy universe, the Oracle of the Dread Gods, and that in the second half of our episodes, we like to steal some advice from our expert guests. I feel like Mike has already given us a lot of good advice, but as we've been talking about here, um, I think when most people think about how books are produced and released, they generally only think of the three key players. I think of the author, the publisher, and the bookseller. But books do have a complicated secret life um, between the publisher and the bookseller in particular. There's a dizzying array of intermediaries uh, involved in the sales, the marketing, printing, warehousing, and distribution of books. And for new publishers like us, uh, the ability to navigate this supply chain effectively can be can actually be more important to the long-term success of the business than the ability of the publisher to, to find best-selling authors. Um, so getting that supply chain right, getting the, the right distribution partners, um, getting your marketing right, if you don't get that right, then you can have a great author, but they'll never you know, get into the right places and get out there. So Mike, fortunately, this is obviously, you're a bit of an expert in this space and especially in the science fiction fantasy genre. So I do have a few questions for you. And the first, we, we touched on this a little bit. You, you, you mentioned that you had some advice for authors when they're, when they're considering what kind of career they want. But for a publisher like us, what, what do you think is the most critical thing to think about when setting up you know, in terms of the sales and marketing, setting up distribution, what's what? What are the most critical decisions a new publisher can make when when establishing themselves in the industry and setting up that supply chain? Yeah, I think at least one of the the big questions is what portion of the the genre and the readership are you publishing for? You know, are you focusing on a specific subgenre? You know, there are publishers that are really focused on military science fiction and space opera, or publishers that are focused on horror which for quite some time was a really narrow part of the market, but now it's been growing again. Um, you know, and there's a really nice back and forth with amazing work in horror uh, film from directors like Jordan Peele or with films like The Witch or Hereditary, and that, that, that there's back and forth with the fiction. And then on the science fiction side, you know, are, are you publishing for the people who love you know, these types of movies? Um, there was a bit where... Uh, for a little while, Angry, one of the Angry Robots log lines was science fiction for the Xbox generation. So that was a generational appeal, but it was also mm. a multi a multi-medium appeal. It was, okay, if you loved playing Fallout, yeah, then we're going to have a book yeah. for you. Um, if you love playing Knights of the Old Republic, we're going to have books for you. And speaking that language of multi-medium fandom which, you know, is absolutely a thing and is even more of a thing now than kind of in those earlier years for Angry Robot, the, the idea that you are not pretending that books exist on their own, you know, while, while fiction often drives forward subgenres in terms of, um, you know, uh, breaking new ground or kind of moving things forward in terms of inclusion or critical analysis, people who are coming to your books have probably also seen films or are reading comics in that space. So one of the things that Robot did was um, make that part of the conversation and try to be your buddy and, you know, and talk geeky if you are a publisher and you want to be in that space, that's certainly an approach that you can take. Literary agent Dongwan Song, who's, for me, one of the smartest people in publishing who I know and get the chance to hang out with here and there, for him, the most important question is always, who is this book for? And if you're a publisher, one of the questions you want to ask yourself is, who am I publishing for? Am I trying to publish for a few sets of people? Am I trying to publish for a specific cluster of people? And that doesn't necessarily mean by subgenre, you know, it could be, um, am I publishing for 
urban professionals who have commutes. Okay, cool. Well, then I want to make sure that I have a strong um, audio strategy, either in-house audio or strong audio partnerships, where then I'm going to be able to try to reach those readers where they are, where they, they have longer commutes. They're very plugged in with devices. So you're going to be able to try to reach them in ebook and in audio and thinking about not just what do we want to publish, but for whom do we want to publish? Because without readers, you don't have a business. It's interesting. Uh, you mentioned um, Angry Robot there. And uh, I, I do remember when that, that tagline, the Xbox generation thing, I, uh, I was actually at the time, I think you were working for Angry Robert doing their, their American sales. I was actually working for uh, an online retailer in Australia called Booktopia. And I was writing their science fiction fantasy newsletter uh, once a month. And so one of the best resources for me, or you know, the resources I was using were really the, the websites and the metadata that, that the publishers were producing. And Angry Robot was quite new at that stage. It had, I think it was about two, two or three years old maximum. I think when, when did Angry Robot start? 2008, 2009? Uh, I think 2009. And I don't recall if that was when the first books were published. I remember, I think Lauren Bukes, it was, it was Moxie Land. Yeah, Moxie Land with, with Lauren Bukes, I think was the first one. It's the first book that I remember picking up. And I definitely gave Angry Robot books, I, I overrepresented them in my newsletter every month. Um, because of the quality of the, I, I understood exactly what these books were going to be about. I knew as, as a reviewer, I, I couldn't read. I, I was listing um, dozens and dozens of books in this newsletter every, every month. I couldn't read all of them. So you relied very much on the, on the quality of the, the sales and marketing material from, from the publisher. Um, and Angry Robot from the start was extremely good at, at identifying you. I, I knew what I was gonna get. I, I trusted the quality of the books very early on. And I knew the audience for it. So it made it very easy for me to include those in my newsletter and to recommend them to people, um, even though I was in Australia. Um, so I wasn't getting sent advanced reading copies. Um, there was distribution in Australia. Um, so I knew the books were going to be available um, for, for Booktopia to order quickly and get out to them. But, um, but simply having that very clear, you know, this is who Angry Robert is. These are the books that we produce. This is the, the, you know, the quality that we're at. Um, it made a huge difference to me and, and booktopia is is now the biggest well it was at the time also the biggest online retailer in australia and, and that that newsletter i think had a had a you know a pretty good impact in in the community because there weren't a lot of things out there for australian you know science fiction and fantasy readers there, there wasn't a lot of news out there for them so i think that was a good example um of how a publisher can do it really well right from the start yeah and maybe one of the, the other lessons to spin out of that uh, that you mentioned in terms of sales materials is um, to, to not just do what everyone else is doing yep. and how you talk about your yep. books. And one of the things that Robot um, has done, you know, certainly did while I was there, uh, was they had what are called file unders. And, yes. you know, a lot of books yeah. will say, you know, science fiction, yeah. but an Angry Robot book might say uh, science fiction, file under, um, you know, stacks of bodies. Um, um, and then there, you know, there'd be some clone, like there'd be some pun uh, on the word clone and, often file under uh, like there'd be four file unders and maybe one of those would be a rejected title. Hmm. So like, Oh, this wasn't the actual, this was a, the title it came in with, but we decided to go with something else, but it's still evocative and signal something to the reader and file unders. They were, they're always like strange and spiky and would catch your attention. Yeah. And then I see a lot of publishers now, especially um, Tor is doing AO3 style tags. So like fan fiction style tags for their novels 
um, calling on that kind of discourse uh, community within science fiction fantasy, where a lot of people who are reading professional SFF now grew up reading fan fiction, yeah. you know, it, whether it was Harry Potter or other things there. And fan fiction is much older than that, of course, but um, it's another way of communicating something and putting uh, tags on your promotional material like that also says, this is for mm. you. Um, so my friend K.M. Spera has a book coming out called Docile, and he is very much uh, coming out of that fandom community and has brought it to his writing. So people who grew up reading fan fiction are going to be happy reading his book because he came out of that community. And Tor.com has been communicating that in the marketing materials, including stuff like those tags. And so if you're trying to differentiate yourself as a publisher, figuring out different ways to communicate especially if you can communicate in a way that's really catchy in a quirky way like file unders or speaks to people in a way they're already used to hearing. Um, yeah, and, and that communication also has to work on two levels because, yes, you can communicate direct with uh, your end readers and publishers, I guess, particularly sci-fi. You mentioned Tor, of course, one of the best uh, out there at, at providing a, a space for their community to come and, and on you know, engage directly on their website. But that's fairly new for publishers. A lot of public, you know, it's only really... In the last 20 years where publishers have have started to connect more directly with readers it's always been through the bookseller and um and right. so a lot of that marketing material has to be able to be passed through the bookseller you have to give it's not just about directing directly to that the community you've got to be able to give them material that that a bookseller is able to then present on um and that's that's that is where the creative elements of, of being inside the you know the marketing and sales department of a of a publishing house. I think really, the real challenge there is how can we get that message through the gatekeeper, um, so that the you know the person on the who picks it up on the on the bookshelf or or, or you know the the person who's buying the books for the for the um, for the shop, you know that sticks with them and they're able to communicate that directly to the to the reader who asks you know give me a recommendation. It also adds a lot of flavor, like the the eager robot way of doing it i remember seeing and thinking like this is fun i don't even know what half these words mean but i yeah. love it like and the, i love the idea of keeping the rejected title as yeah. one of those like it's, that's yeah. awesome I, I don't know whether i or other staff at angry robot have revealed that secret before but i don't believe that was ever nda'd so uh, <laughs> well, i was certainly you heard aware of it you got the scoop yeah. that's very cool I yeah. love that. That's really, really, that's a really cool, because I feel like too, there's got it, there's got it, whether it's the author or somebody else down the line who was in love with a title and it got scrapped for one reason or another, like that's, that's at least a little bit of a conciliatory prize at the end. Yeah. And the, a lot of those, the kind of rejected cover or re rejected titles, they don't work because they don't communicate as broadly, or maybe they don't do, as Richard said, they don't do the double duty, but they still really say something about the work. So instead of having that be the central pillar on which something, um, you know, on which a lot of weight of attention sits, you use it to to make the, the work feel distinct. Well, there's also something to be said for the emotions that something like the right words can evoke, even if it doesn't necessarily inform you in a way. It's kind of like the colors you choose for the cover are there to communicate at a lower, like a deeper level, at an emotional level. Right, like... Um, in, in the film world, there's this joke that, uh, that you have the orange and blue cover, uh, the orange and blue poster for the science fiction action movie. Yeah. And it's just, it's always orange and blue, and it's usually either a gradient or it's a, um, you know, kind of um, orange on one side, blue on the other. And it's just, it is a subconscious visual language, like you, you indicated. And the semiotics of subgenre uh, cues in book covers is absolutely a big thing. And so one of the, the things that I was excited about with Aria is 
using this kind of neon kind of um, synth wavy vibe um, in the cover to communicate, okay, if you liked the style of something like the movie Thor Ragnarok, or you liked Guardians of the Galaxy, or you liked just synthwave music, um, which are all things that I connected with, and Guardians and Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok were, were notable touchstones for me in that. That, without saying anything, communicates to a potential reader in a way that it doesn't necessarily go one-to-one with uh, the standard expectations that come with a space opera novel. Which I think is, yeah, and again, the cover is fantastic. We've touched on the, the idea of community um, a little bit as well. Uh, and that's something that we're, we're very conscious of um, building, you know, this publishing house is, is the, the want to really bring not only Jay's current fan base along with him, but, but build a strong fan base around, around his writing. And yeah, I wonder, you know, what have you seen done well? Obviously, Angry Robot... Um, you know have done a lot of things uh, one thing obviously they had the the robot army who were bloggers that they were sort of their they'd get these review copies out to and and uh they would be the first wave of people talking about the books out there but and you know tour.com you mentioned again you know is, is a great space for for readers and, and they don't just talk about tour books they talk about science fiction and fantasy in general i'm wondering if you've seen any you know what have you seen in terms of community building in science fiction and fantasy that that a new publishing house especially one that's that's focused around a, a strong central universe or, or you know a strong author what advice have you got for us there in terms of community building for the fans yeah i think kind of building on what you mentioned for tour the biggest thing that I think can work for an author or for a publisher is to be a rising tide that lifts all boats. So, you know, you're talking about other works that you're excited about. So like, well, we're, you know, we're publishing these books and we're very proud of them. But if you're a science fiction publisher, you're probably also a science fiction reader. So shouting out books by other publishers that you're really excited about, um, you know, sharing some of your platform with other works that you think are worthy, um, even if they're not necessarily works that maybe the, what you're publishing is in dialogue with. Because what you're indicating there to readers is that you're not just a, a producer of this work, you're also a curator. Because you're curating the work that you're publishing, but then you're also bringing your individual taste or the taste of the group to um, to what it means to be that publisher. And then you're sharing that. And for me, as, a, as an author, I've definitely tried to lean into my individual taste and to use the platform that I have to lift up other people's voices, not just my friends, but also uh, new and emerging writers and especially writers from marginalized backgrounds where I know that there is kind of an invisible debuff on reach for anybody who's a creator from a marginalized background. And if I can counteract that a little bit by boosting the signal, then I'm going to be able to give them a better shot where their work is just as good and better than maybe another writer who had more advantages because they've had to work harder to get to where they are. And so that work is worth attention. And then the community is enriched by people getting to connect with something that is not going to feel the same as the, the kinds of books that have been published before because it's coming out of individual experience, as all books do. But if an experience is underrepresented and then you get uh, a new voice and people get to pay attention to them, they get to discover them, then everybody is winning. And then you can react to what they're doing and the flow and the back and forth in the field is going to be different. And I think to whatever degree you can be a part of a community that is welcoming to new voices and um, kind of insulates community from um, bad actors. You know, science fiction fantasy prose has had a lot of ups and downs with bad actors in the past 
you know, seven or eight years, um, you know, uh, sad puppy, rabbit puppy was one of those early outbreaking uh, outbreaks of what came to be known as the alt-right. And something I've, I've been hearing people talk about lately is like, oh, well, if you're welcoming to everybody, you're not actually welcoming to everybody because if you're letting bad actors in, you are implicitly, if not explicitly, pushing out or silencing or encouraging the silencing of the people who are already targeted and marginalized. And so instead, I think the thing is to to try to be that supportive, forward-looking community because then you're you're indicating to readers and then to other people that you're building a space that is that same forward-looking, that is trying to lift up voices and things like that, and that that reflects well on you, and especially if that's part of, you know, your core, um, your mission is to, you know, lift up voices, bring in collaborators and things like that, that aligns very perfectly with your, you know, your mission statement and your corporate brand or whatever, and it's just, it's good um, community citizenship. I think that's excellent advice. Yeah. And it's, well, the, the analogy is, you know, there's no faster way to kill a dinner party than to continually invite the guy who likes to stab things back and over and over again. So, yeah, no, I totally get that. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on to Building the Oracle with us. Where can, aside from buying Annihilation Aria, where can uh, our delightful listeners find you on the internet? Sure thing. You can find me at michaelrunderwood.com. Uh, or on Twitter at Mike R. Underwood. I have a Patreon that's mostly um, mostly includes me writing essays about the business uh, and craft of publishing, occasionally tabletop role-playing games, because that's another thing that I love. And then um, Annihilation Aria comes out on May 5th, um, and it should be available in print, ebook, and hopefully audio upon publication. We're still dotting the T's and crossing those eyes um, yeah, so yeah that's important uh-huh. to get those done they got to cross those dang eyes no i'm really excited for this book to finally come out i was fortunate enough to read an earlier draft years ago and i'm so excited for it to finally see the light of day make sure you go and grab mike's book right away follow him on twitter give him all the love you can on the internet and we will see him again i am sure on this show in the future thanks mike thanks so much for having me And now we're back in Paris. It was a great trip over to Novi, Michigan. I had some delicious gas station Indian food from across the street. So jealous. It's amazing. You would not expect there to be delicious Indian food in a gas station in the suburbs of Detroit. But boy, is there. It's the experience I never knew I needed. You do need it. We'll, we'll, we'll make this happen in a year or two. Excellent. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to take <laughs> Richard to do it. I had a great time going and talking to everybody. It was obviously really, really nice just to sit and chat with friends like Mike. Uh, again, we should just keep pumping. Mike, if you want to go... Pre-order his book right now, Annihilation Aria. It's coming out. Make sure you grab it. I had the pleasure of beta reading it for him a long time ago, and uh, I'm really looking forward to sitting down and reading the physical copy that he gave me with all the changes that hopefully one or two of the ones suggestions I made made it in because <laughs> I'm so smart. Throw it over to me after you're done. I'm, oh, I'm no, yeah, absolutely. That was it. Just go for it. Yep. Oh, you mean throw the book over oh, to you? Oh, yeah, you throw the book. Not I the, thought you were just like, Jay, yeah. stop talking. Stop talking. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got things to say. Well, I do have things to say. So... Um, Obviously, the, uh, the the conversation here happened a few weeks ago, but uh, it's really interesting that that so much of the stuff that we talked about with Mike um, had a lot of parallels with the conversation you had with Steve Drew. Yeah, a lot. Which is last episode, episode five. Uh, Steve urged us to work on how we describe your books when we put them into, uh, out into the world, and that's to ensure that the right readers can find them, but also to help um, make it easier to sort of start word of mouth so that your fans can, can talk about those books. Mike actually went further than that uh, in this conversation and really showed us why that's so important, not just for the individual books, but for the 
for every communication coming from our publishing house. So what we're really talking about here in very bland business language is branding. Um, we need a coherent, consistent brand identity to help people notice us, to set their expectations and hopefully to go on and champion us in the marketplace. So far, we've, we've let our identity grow organically. Um, it's basically, Jay, your blogging persona uh, mixed with elements from the fantasy universe that you've created. Um, and that's fine while it's just us communicating directly with our fans. But eventually, we're going to need the publishing house and the, those books and other intermediaries like uh, reviewers and, and our fans to do the communicating for us. And so now's the time to really start pulling all that together and, and really establish some brand guidelines. So I'd say the, the, the first action point from this episode is to get started on those brand guidelines. Absolutely. I think that that's the one of the big struggles for me too in that I think all authors struggle with this to some degree is how do you sum up your book in a sentence or how yeah. do you like your elevator pitch, your five second, 50 second, whatever, but however you end up breaking it down. And, and often the authors are the wrong people to do that. Oh, very much the wrong people yeah. to do it. Yeah, As, but it, that doesn't absolve the author of the responsibility no. to be able to communicate that. And the tricky part is then obviously being as involved as I am in everything else needing to jump in and be a part of that but also to to submit to it because I think the other challenge is really what what ends up happening is you have somebody who has put in hundreds of hours into this this complex work ideally and it, they're being told we are we need to be able to say in like a few words everything about the book that somebody needs to know to buy it and so at the back of your mind, you're like, yeah, but you can't just describe my child. And like, they're, they're, yes, they're, they've got brown hair and they're missing a leg. Like, no, there's so much more to them than that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like at the end of the day, it's, a, it's kind of a pride issue more than anything and an unwillingness to submit to that. So thankfully, I think I've been through the, gr the grinder of this enough times to know that I'm, I'm nothing special and it's, it's time, neither is my work. Yep. So let's just nail that down. But it is, it's one of those consistent things. And I think both Steve and Mike hammered at this very effectively. It's, it's, it's absolutely necessary for the success of any creative endeavor to be able to do that. So yeah, we need to do that. It's yeah. going to be painful, but we need to do it. Absolutely. And, and it's not just the, the text in the books. It's, it's not just, a, you know, branding exercise is not just a logo either. It's, it's every communication. It's the, it's what we say. It's what we uh, it's how we sound. It's how we, you know, the, the look of the website. It's the it's the way we talk to our fans. So everything, yeah, so. and that really it pans out well because we did with my sister, who was the co-host of our bonus episode with Rick. She helps with a lot of the social media side of things already for my YouTube and Instagram side of things, and she was walking Kate through uh, what we're hoping to do with some of the Paris stuff is to start building up you know, a separate silo, a separate brand of that where we can feed into it from what we already have, but trying to build something that can stand on its own legs that's separate and that branding, those elements of like, well, what defines what we post, what we show? What are the elements that has to fit within a certain bucket in order for us to post it? It's a way of saying no to a lot more things. And that was a really helpful exercise for the Paris side of things mm -hmm. to start thinking that way. It's harder for what we have on the fantasy side because while there we have a lot of material to work from, we're also starting from not from scratch, but we're like, we're going back to the drawing board on a lot of this to try and really present it well. So that for me is also an argument to take it slow and really make sure we do it right. Um, yes. And, and to take our time and to, to come out with it. Obviously we're going to have to start pumping stuff out sooner than later, but really making sure that we're not rushing. Yeah. But I think now's the time to take control of that process and, yeah. and to start thinking about it in a very organized way. Absolutely. I mean, we don't even have a name for the publishing house yet. No, we don't. No, that's why we, we have my old, house. we have my old imprint name, but I, I think we're probably going to go yeah. through something else. So. Yeah. so that's, that's a big exercise. We need to, we need to get started now. And yeah. yeah. Now the, the second part, and, and again, this, this really tied into very well what we were talking about with Steve Drew and that's uh, the community building. And it, it was something we touched on right at the end here with Mike, 
he talked about using our platform as a publisher to be inclusive and to lift people up so that everyone in the community is better off. And following on from Steve and, and his advice on community building, I, I think it's really time for us to take that next step in building a community by creating a, a centralised location for all of our fans um, and, and that central space. Because at the moment, I think you've got present in a lot of different media and and people are communicating with us on all those different platforms and I think we need to find a, a centralised space for that. And that's saying that I know you've been thinking about a lot and w- we've discussed, um, particularly after the Steve Drew episode, and it's really, I think, hammered home here with Mike as well, that we need that central location and you suggested Discord as a platform and I, I agree, I think that's a really good platform for us to, to use. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what Discord is and, and why you think it would be good for us. Yeah, I think that Discord is basically a, it's kind of like a, a high-end chat room meets message board where you can chat with other people, you can chat directly, you can do voice chat. It was developed basically for gamers so that you could join a, a chat room where you could talk to each other really easily, regardless of what game you were in, or maybe even across games, whatever. It's just kind of a really nice, simple in a lot of ways, but uh, very diverse platform for communication. And one of the reasons that it came up, there are a couple of reasons that it comes up. One is because we really want to make sure we offer something special for our patrons at the same time as offering um, you know, something for the, the greater public to be a part of. And it gives us the ability to link it directly to Patreon, uh, and then give patrons special access to things that uh, otherwise be unavailable. So that's really, really cool. And also because I've, I've got a couple other online communities that I've been a part of for a really long time, one of whom was a gaming community that I was a part of back in college and when I was living in France the first time, long time ago. They've That's where they've migrated to. They used to have a message board. They used to have a website and all this. They've really migrated everything to Discord where they can jump on a, a chat with each other uh, really easily. They can also just kind of keep up to date on whatever they want. They can have specialized channels. So that way we can break it down and you could have channels that would be dedicated to Paris. People could get together and talk about their vacations or plan together. Uh, people could get together and talk about fantasy, science fiction. They could sit and enjoy the the live stream of a game with higher quality audio if they wanted there's a lot of uh nice little perks to it uh depending on what we decide to do with it and it gives us a space where we can give people to talk amongst themselves which is already happening dixie's listening right now and i know she's been corralling people uh together which is great and so we want to give um some of our super fans and our super patrons uh, but, you know, just not, you don't have to be a patron necessarily to to want to be a part of this conversation. So basically, we want to when we roll this out, it will be to patrons first and some of our uh, hardcore fans that we know are going to be invested in it. And some of my gaming buddies who are probably going to help uh, moderate. But then we want to roll it out progressively until we do have a lot of public channels and opportunities for people to come and and chat and hang out and uh, and then better inform each other of what's going on. And I don't know, just give people a chance to hang out and then we'll drop in from time to time. Uh, and be a part of that as well. And then like when I'm streaming, which I would like to still do more than twice a year, which is kind of the rate that I'm doing it at, but you know, then that's where I'll do it. And it'll give us a, a, a more uh, unique and controllable environment to chat in than like through Twitch. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, very exciting and it's a very slick platform. If people haven't been on Discord, um, download the app and, and have a look at it. Yeah, it's you can get it on desktop. <laughs> this is turning into a Discord yeah. uh, <laughs> ad, but you can get it on your phone or you can get it on your desktop and I have it on both. So look for more news about that um, coming up. Uh, but yeah, that, that's our second action point is to, is to get that set up uh, and get that ready to launch in the, next, in the coming months. So there we go. That's it. Thanks for listening.
Today's podcast is made possible by our magnanimous patrons whose contributions directly impact our work here as well as the future of the project. They are the best. Our super patrons as of this recording are Susan French, Dixie Rose, Karen Bates, David Guy, Kevin, Jane Baker, Figures 73, Steve, and Mystery Man. Thank you all. Building the Oracle is mixed and produced by Zach Egan, co-hosted by Richard Bilkey, mascotted proudly by his four-legged friend Gustav, and is written and co-hosted by yours truly. Our theme music is Glory by David Cutter, who you can also find and support directly on Patreon. And our ad music is Light. And our newsletter is assembled with love by our own Kate Weber. Don't forget you can support us at patreon.com slash dreadgods whenever that itch grows too strong to resist and you want to hear me say your name on the air. Don't forget to rate and review Building the Oracle on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts, or Gustav will gnaw the feet off your antique end tables. Oh, no, I didn't see that coming. My name is Jay Swanson, and thank you again for listening. Tune back in in two weeks for our next guest, author and professor at the American University of Paris, Michelle Quo. Until then, keep making rad shit.